Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will endure forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, first of all, that you would help this microphone to work because the people in this sanctuary not only need to hear this message, but the people online need to hear this message. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, that would work. But most importantly, Lord, we pray not for what is happening physically in this service, but spiritually what is happening in this service. We beg you, O God, that your spirit would work within our hearts, that you would penetrate our hearts so that your word would be planted and rooted deep into our souls, that it would take root and bear fruit not just today, but for the years to come, for all of eternity. And Father, we also beg and ask of you, Father, that you would penetrate our minds, that we would understand the truth of your word, the significance of the doctrine taught here in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people agreed, saying, amen. 284 days. 284 days until summer break. Some of you are not smiling. You're frowning. Why? Because you know that that means you're going to have to persevere. For those of you that are students, you know you've got to persevere through this school year. There are going to be some some lessons you're going to learn, some things you're going to have to learn that you're going to have to endure. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And for those of you that are teachers, you know that you're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to deal with the challenges of expectations of the school system, expectations of parents. Some of you are having to teach in person and online either simultaneously or you're not even going to get like a lunch break or a a snack break. It's going to be very, very difficult. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to endure discouragement, interruptions, frustrations, even unrealistic expectations. Some of us, we're going to have to persevere simply at home. Some of you will be full-time mothers, full, doing a full-time job, and trying to teach your children at home as well. There will be setbacks. There will be challenges. You will have to persevere. Some of you are having to persevere as parents or grandparents because your, your children have hit, hit the terrible twos. And so you're hoping that you can endure those years and that your, your child can survive that year. And some of us are persevering in our marriages because we've hit a rough spot. We've hit another rough patch. And we're wondering, can we persevere? Can we endure? Some of us are persevering in our jobs. Perhaps it is a season where you're just annoyed by having to wear a mask. You're annoyed because you can't read the facial expressions of your coworkers or those to whom you're trying to sell a product. You're having to persevere. What happens in our lives day to day also happens in our spiritual lives. We encounter rough spots, rough patches in our faith. Or we're discouraged. Maybe we drift. We even wrestle with doubts. 
And does God's word have anything encouraging to say to us while we're in those times? Or does God's word have anything to say to us that's encouraging when we hit those times? It does. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, if you look at me, you may not say, Tanner, you may look at me and say, Tanner, I know you. You're not a saint. You're not perfect. And I know no one in this room is perfect. If you thought that you were, I'm sorry for the wake-up call this morning. But what we mean by saints is this, is that when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see us covered in the stench and filth of our sin, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is an aspect in which we need to endure, we need to persevere. But what we learn in this doctrine called the perseverance of the saints is this, is that ultimately it is God who is preserving us that helps us persevere. And so for the last five weeks, we've been uh, exploring with one another the doctrines of grace that are remembered by this acronym of TULIP. And so this morning as we come to the P in TULIP, I want to define for us that doctrine. This morning we're going to define the doctrine, defend it biblically, and then we're going to talk about the difference that it makes in our lives. Let me define it for us. What does the doctrine of perseverance of the saints mean? It means this. God promises your salvation is perfectly preserved and permanently protected by his sovereign grace. Let me unpack that for you. What does that mean? First of all, God promises. Ultimately, your salvation is not based upon your promise to God, but it's based upon God's promise to you. God made a covenant vow that he would save us by his grace. And so ultimately your salvation is dependent upon God's ability to keep his own promises rather than upon promises you've made to God. God promises this, that he will perfectly preserve your salvation. That from start to finish, he will sustain you and he will keep you going. How? By the work of his Holy Spirit within you. And he will permanently protect you. That your eternity with him and your salvation with him, your status with him, will be perfectly protected. How? By his sovereign grace. By his strong, sovereign hand working graciously in your life. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The assertion that believers persevere in the faith and obedience despite everything is true. But... The reason is that Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit preserves you. Ultimately, the reason why our salvation is secure is because of God and his work in us by his Spirit. We've been exploring these doctrines of grace together. and We've talked about how there's a biblical logic to it. Let's retrace our steps so we can appreciate more fully this morning, this doctrine of perseverance of the saints. First of all, we have to remember the T. What did the T tell us? That we're all totally depraved. 
that everyone is a sinner, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every inclination of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. So not only is everyone in this room a sinner, but every aspect of our being is contaminated by sin. And where does that leave us? That leaves us spiritually dead. That's what we mean by total depravity. Remember I said, how often does a dead person call 911? Never. A dead person never picks up the phone and calls 911 because they can't. In a similar way, spiritually, you and I are spiritually dead. And left to our own selves, left to our own condition, we would never pick up the phone and call God and ask him to save us. And so the doctrine of grace, first of all, teaches us how severe our spiritual condition is. And then the rest of the doctrines of grace answer the simple question of how. How can anyone in that condition be saved? Well, the first way that the doctrines of grace answer the question how anyone can be saved is this, is through the you. Unconditional election. God, according to his good pleasure and will, has chosen to save some. How does he do that? Through limited atonement, through sending his son to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. That's what every sin deserves, both in this life and in the life to come. And so God the Father sends the Son as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, to pay substitutionary atonement for our sins. Well, that's wonderful. Then how in the world does that get applied to our lives? Through irresistible grace. That God the Father, those whom he's chosen, he will draw to himself by the Holy Spirit. We won't come kicking and screaming because God will regenerate our hearts. He'll take our heart of stone and make it beat for God the Father. He'll make it a heart of flesh. And so therefore, he regenerates our hearts so that we want to serve him. We want to love him. We want to be in a relationship with him. And then he promises to preserve us and to protect us to the end. Throughout the last several weeks, I've been using an illustration that I've, I've kind of inched the illustration forward a little bit each week. And I'm going to conclude that illustration this week with the illustration about the dog pound. How many of you remember the illustration of the dog pound by a show of hands? Okay, a few of you. Okay, not all of you. That discourages me. But most of you remember the illustration of the dog pound. Let's walk back through it so that we can massage this doctrine into our lives. Remember I said in order to understand the gospel... You can understand it through this illustration. Many people think that the human condition is just like a cute little fluffy puppy that you see in a, in a dog store, in a pet store, and that, you know, you could pick one or the other, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're, pref, they're perfect. They're precious. And I said, no, that's not the picture of redemption. The picture of redemption is like we all are rabid dogs in the dog pound that snarl and, 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 and snap at God the Father who is our creator. And we all, it's like we're, we're infected with rabies. We don't have anything to do with God. And we all are guilty of like maiming little children. And as much as a, of us are dog lovers in this sanctuary, we wouldn't have a problem with any of those rabid dogs that had maimed children being euthanized. Would you? Now, those of you that are dog haters, I know you wouldn't mind for all the dogs to be euthanized anyway. But for those of us that are dog lovers, even we would not have a problem with those dogs being euthanized. And you would be amazed 
if a billionaire with a family walked into that dog pound and was willing to take any of those dogs home with him? Why would you be amazed? Because you know what those dogs deserve. In a similar way, God could have saved everyone, but God was perfectly justified if he had allowed everyone to go to hell and experience his eternal damnation justice for eternity. But God, according to his good pleasure and will, came in, and he didn't lay down dollars on the counter to take some of us home with him, but he, he gave his one and only son to pay the cost of redemption. Jesus paid the ransom fee for us, and then he takes us home with him. Remember I said last week, I hope you go home and YouTube some videos about the difference that uh, you can see in a dog that's been rescued. A dog that has been abused, a dog that has been angry and hostile to people, suddenly when it's given a wonderful home, will change into a pet, be transformed. In a similar way, that's how we are with God's grace being poured on in our lives. That we go from being hostile to God the Father, hostile to Christ, and now he's changed us and now we want to be with him. And what's the conclusion to that illustration? It's only fitting that that billionaire that's paid the cost to take that rabid dog home will look that puppy dog in the eye and say, this is your forever home. And that's precisely what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teaches us, is that what God starts, he will finish. What God begins, he will complete. God will not quit on you. Friends, some of you, your spouse may be ready to quit on you, but Jesus won't. Some of you, you may feel like your parents are ready to quit on you and give up on you, but Jesus won't. You may feel like your church has given up on you. There may be times when you feel as if your church has failed you, but Jesus will not quit you. Jesus will not give up on you. Why? Because God isn't a quitter. God will finish what he started. How do we know that? Well, several passages of Scripture prove that to us, and there are three that happen to be in your bulletin this morning. John chapter 6, verse 37 says this, And all that the Father will give me will come to me. That's irresistible grace and election. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, those whom God elects, he will save. Those whom he saves, he will sustain. And he will keep their salvation secure. The other passage that proves this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, what God, fin- what God begins, he will finish. What God starts, he will complete. God will not quit on you. God will not give up on you. What does it mean, the day of Jesus Christ? It refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's still working on you to make you what he wants you to be. And he will not give up on you until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yesterday we buried Miss Ellie and I have based upon her profession of faith and the fruit of her life, have no doubt that Ellie is with the Lord today. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But here's what we know the scriptures teach us. There's an aspect of heaven 
Ellie's going to experience differently at the second coming of Jesus Christ. How so? Because right now her body is resting in the grave. Her soul is with the Lord. But at the second coming of Jesus Christ, at the day of Jesus Christ, do you know what God is going to do for her? Her soul and bodies are going to be reunited and transformed. And at that point, for the rest of eternity, Ellie will have a transformed body like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Absolutely. And the final passage that proves to us this doctrine is Romans chapter 8, verse 30. A passage of scripture we've, we've taken a look at several times. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember, this is the ordo salutis. This is the golden chain of salvation. That God secures every link in that chain. And we know that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. But God does not allow any weak link in this golden chain of salvation. So those whom God has predestined, whom God has elected, he is saved. He's justified. In other words, he's provided the the atonement for their sins. And God as judge has sounded the gavel. And he's declared us innocent of all charges, not because we're innocent, but because he's imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, which means this. He's credited Christ's righteousness to me and you. So when God looks at us, he no longer longer sees us stained in the filthiness of our sin, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And those whom he's called, he was justified, and those whom he justified, he also will glorify. Do you see what God starts, he will finish. What God begins, he will complete. That is the promise of God's word. That, my friends, is exceptionally good news. Exceptionally good news. Why so? How many, how many of you, by a show of hands, have ever heard the story about the little engine that could? Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. My mom used to read me that story all the time. It was one of my favorite stories growing up. She'd read that book to me about the little engine that could. He was a little engine, and I, and I take great comfort in that little engine because, you know what? Some people consider me to be short. I know you'll find that hard to believe, but some people find me to be short. You know, but in my wife's eyes, I'm tall, dark, and handsome. Thank you. See that thumbs up? Love that woman. But I would take great comfort in that, in that story because it talked about this little engine, about how he was trying so hard to get up the hill and to, and to carry that load. And as his wheels would clink on the, on the tracks, it would make that, that clinking sound. And he would say to himself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I found it to be very motivating in my life many times because sometimes I don't know that if I can do something, but yet I say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But unfortunately, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, that isn't where we want to be, yet that's where some of us are each and every day. 
We think that our salvation is based upon ourselves and we say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But I'm hoping and praying as we come to the conclusion of this sermon series that you'll come to this realization. I know I can't, I know I can't, I know I can't. But I know he can. He has. And he will. But the God in his sovereign grace before the foundation of the world, chose to save me. Not because of anything good that he saw in me, but purely because of his mere good pleasure and will. He chose to save me for his glory. And he saved me by sending his son in my place. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And no one will ever cast him out. And be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That, my friends, is the gospel from start to finish. That, my friend, highlights the doctrines of grace. So what difference does it make? You should be filled with joy Humility and gratitude because you know you can't, you know you can't, you know you can't. But you know he can. He has. And he will sustain you. So what difference does this doctrine make in our lives? The first difference it makes is this. This doctrine does not give you a license to sin. That's one of the many objections to the doctors of grace, it's this. Well, if you believe that, Pastor Tanner, then people are just going to go out and live however they want to. Are you kidding me? If you believe that after hearing the doctors of grace, from, from the, the rabid dog illustration to all the doctors of grace, if you walk away thinking that these doctors of grace give you a license to sin, you have missed the point, brother and sister. Totally missed the point. It would be like this. It would be like if you saw a couple that, that gathered in the sanctuary, took covenant vows on their wedding day, and they said, well, you know what? My wife said she would love me for better or worse, rich or poor. And so I'm going to walk straight out these doors on the day of my wedding. I'm going to commit adultery on my wife, and I'm going to gamble everything I've got at Las Vegas. You would look at that person and be like, Ah, uh, I think you missed the point. The point of making those vows is not to give you a license to go live however you want as a married man. If you think that on your wedding day, if you walk out the, the sanctuary doors on your wedding day, wouldn't you say they've probably missed the point? Absolutely. In a similar way, Jesus says, if you live that way, as a response to these doctrines of grace, you have missed the point. Because Jesus says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll want to obey me. Why? Because you know how far he's brought you. Also listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And your, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that passage important? For this reason, look at me. Do you hear what it said? Now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. So it talks about your sanctification, and then it talks about God keeping you blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two are related. The way that God preserves you in your salvation is he continues to sanctify you in your salvation. The way that God secures your salvation, he continues to to bring you in points of your walk with him that you begin to see different areas in your life that you know are not aligned with God's desire and God's revealed will. It's like this. If I bought a, a 57 Mustang, it belongs to me, but it probably needs to be washed and restored in some ways. That's sanctification. In justification, God purchases us. We belong to him, but sanctification is him polishing out the rust and the dust and the smears on our, in our character. Friends, this doctrine of perseverance of the saints does not give us a license to sin. Quite the opposite. It gives us the motivation to seek to be obedient to him. The second difference this doctrine makes is it helps us understand that not every profession of faith is always genuine. Not every profession of faith in the church is always genuine. We just came through a membership class, and we covered a lot of doctrine, a lot of stuff, in a little bit of time. And I was, I was talking with some ministers in the ARP denomination this week and asking them about how they do membership class. I'm always trying to evaluate things and do things better. And this is where a lot of us fall. Do you know what I want out of a membership class? I want fat people is what I want. Faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Available. Put themselves in a position to to be fed by God's means of grace and they're teachable. But the The bottom line is this, as best we can session, as best we can elders, with my time here with you, I want to make sure as best we can that every person we receive as a member is truly regenerate. They're truly saved. There may be some things that we disagree about. There may be some things you struggle with for many years to come, but bottom line, if you make me, if you push me in the corner and say, Tanner, what do you really want? I just want to make sure as best we can that the people that would sign their names to the membership role of this church are truly regenerate. They're truly saved. If they're that and faithful, available, and teachable over time, other things will work themselves out, or at best, they'll be the best members in the church because we'll agree to disagree on things that aren't essential. But here's the problem. Some of us take these doctrines of grace and we run them in a the wrong direction. And we think, well, I grew up in a, in a church that believed in predestination and therefore I must be predestined. I see it happen at Presbytery. You ask a guy for his testimony, how did he come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he gives you his testimony about how he became convinced about predestination. Now, don't get me wrong. 
If you're going to be a preacher of the ARB church, you better believe in predestination. But that ain't your testimony. Part of your testimony. But it ain't about how you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, what matters is do you have a saving knowledge of the Lord? The fact of the matter is there are a lot of people that make a profession of faith and it's not genuine. And our Lord Jesus addresses that. He says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. J.I. Packer says this, This does not mean that all who ever professed a conversion were saved. John says it this way in 1 John two nineteen: They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. Here's how R.C. Sproul says it. If you're truly saved, God will sustain you. If you lose your salvation, you never truly had it. Now, it doesn't mean that there, don't, there won't come a time where people drift. It doesn't mean that there won't be a time when people have their doubts. There may become a patch in your life where you're even stuck in sin. But if they're truly saved, they truly have saving faith, God will preserve them. If they lose their salvation, they never had it. I wrestled with this this week because someone brought to my attention some ministers that have been called in sin and have disqualified themselves from ministry. And we wrestle with the question, are they truly saved? And this thought came to my mind. I don't know if they're truly repentant or not, but if they are truly repentant, here's what could be happening. God may love them so much that he would rather them be ashamed of their sin, be disciplined, and be brought to genuine repentance rather than to live the rest of their Christian life as a lie and die and go to hell. See, friends, God loves you enough that he would rather shame you to save you. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. They realized their nakedness, they were ashamed, and they realized that, that the leaves that they tried to create as loincloths to cover themselves was not adequate. It didn't cover the shame. The only way that their shame could be covered was by the sacrifice that God provided for them, which was the skin coverings that God provided for Adam and Eve. In a similar way, the only thing that will ever cover my shame and your shame for our sin is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This brings us to the last difference this doctrine makes. It gives us assurance of salvation. If you think the once saved, always saved question means, okay, now that I'm saved, I can live however I want. We dealt with that earlier. That's not what this means. But truly, assurance of salvation comes from the fact that God sustains you from start to finish. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. 
Yesterday evening, Jennifer and I had a privilege of having dinner with a family in our church. And they have several children. And, and, and one of their children had a, had a stuffed animal. It was a minion stuffed animal, okay? He called it a ball. I didn't want to break his heart. I'm like, it's not a ball. It's a stuffed animal. But we'll pretend like it's a ball, okay? And he wanted to play this game with me where he held the minion in his hand. And he wanted me to try to knock it out of his hand. And at first I was like, okay. And then I realized the little booger was a little competitive. And he was really holding on to it pretty good. So then I was really trying to trying to struggle to get it out of his hand. I thought, this little booger's pretty good at this, okay? And the whole time I'm thinking, man, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to play with this kid because you know what this kid's giving me a picture of? The gospel. That far greater than this child, Lord Jesus, you have me in your right hand and no one will ever be able to snatch me out of your hand. How can anyone be saved? It's purely by God's sovereign grace. From start to finish. It's him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to leave this place today knowing that we can't save ourselves. May none of us leave here this day thinking that we can, but help us to leave here today knowing that you've saved us purely by your grace. As the hymn is going to poetically and accurately articulate, help us leave here today knowing that not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands, but thou must save and thou alone. Remind us that nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to thy cross we cling. And so today we ask you to wash us, Savior, lest we die. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people agreed, saying, Amen. Let us stand and sing a hymn of response together, Rock of Ages.